Chapter Fifteen, Part Two of the Teeth of the Tiger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Teeth of the Tiger by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter Fifteen: The Heir to the Hundred Millions. A kind of electric shock ran through the little group in the corner, and one of the persons forming it came forward. It was Weber, the deputy chief detective. The two men looked each other straight in the eyes. Don Luis smiled amiably. Weber was livid. He shook in every limb and was plainly striving to contain himself. Near him stood a couple of journalists and four detectives. By Jove, the beggars are there for me, thought Don Luis. But their confusion shows that they did not believe that I should have the cheek to come. Are they going to arrest me? Weber did not move, but in the end his face expressed a certain satisfaction, as though he were saying, "I've got you this time, my fine fellow, and you shan't escape me." The office messenger returned, and without a word led the way for Don Luis. Perenna passed in front of Weber with the politest of bows, bestowed a friendly little nod on the detectives, and entered. The Comte d'Estrignac hurried up to him at once, with hands outstretched, thus showing that all the tittle-tattle in no way affected the esteem in which he continued to hold Private Perenna of the Foreign Legion. But the Prefect of Police maintained an attitude of reserve which was very significant. He went on turning over the papers which he was examining, and conversed in a low voice with the solicitor and the American Secretary of Embassy. Don Luis thought to himself, "'My dear Lupin, there's someone going to leave this room with the bracelets on his wrists.' If it's not the real culprit, it'll be you, my poor old chap. And he remembered the early part of the case, when he was in the workroom at the Fauvilles' house before the magistrates, and had either to deliver the criminal to justice or to incur the penalty of immediate arrest. In the same way, from the start to the finish of the struggle, he had been obliged, while fighting the invisible enemy, to expose himself to the attacks of the law, with no means of defending himself except by indispensable victories. Harassed by constant onslaughts, never out of danger, yet successively hurried to their deaths Marie Fauville and Gaston Sauvrin, two innocent people sacrificed to the cruel laws of war. Was he at last about to fight the real enemy, or would he himself succumb at the decisive moment? He rubbed his hands with such a cheerful gesture that M. de Malion could not help looking at him. Don Luis wore the radiant air of a man who is experiencing a pure joy, and who is preparing to taste others even greater. The prefect of police remained silent for a moment, as though asking himself what that devil of a fellow could be so pleased with. Then he fumbled through his papers once more, and, in the end, said, "'We have met again, gentlemen, as we did two months ago, to come to a definite conclusion about the Mornington inheritance. Signor Caceres, the attaché of the Peruvian legation, will not be here. I have received a telegram from Italy to tell me that Signor Caceres is seriously ill.' however his presence was not indispensable there is no one lacking therefore except those alas whose claims this meeting would gladly have sanctioned that is to say cosmo mornington's heirs there is one other person absent monsieur le prefet monsieur de malion looked up the speaker was don luis the prefect hesitated and then decided to ask him to explain whom do you mean what person the murderer of the mornington heirs this time again Don Luis compelled attention, and in spite of the resistance which he encountered, obliged the others to take notice of his presence and to yield to his ascendancy. Whatever happened, they had to listen to him. Whatever happened, they had to discuss with him things which seemed incredible, but which were possible because he put them into words. "'Monsieur le préfet,' he asked, "'will you allow me to set forth the facts of the matter as it now stands? They will form a natural sequel and conclusion of the interview which we had after the explosion on the boulevard Suchet.' M. de Malion's silence gave Don Luis leave to speak. He at once continued. "'It will not take long, Monsieur le Préfet. It will not take long for two reasons. 
First, because M. Fauville's confessions remain at our disposal, and we know definitively the monstrous part which he played. And secondly, because after all the truth, however complicated it may seem, is really very simple. It all lies in the objection which you, M. le Préfet, made to me on leaving the wrecked house on the boulevard Suchet. How is it, you asked, that the Mornington inheritance is not once mentioned in Hippolyte Fauville's confession? It all lies in that, M. le Préfet. Hippolyte Fauville did not say a word about the inheritance, and the reason, evidently, is that he did not know of it. And the reason why Gaston Sauverin was able to tell me his whole sensational story, without making the least allusion to the inheritance, was that the inheritance played no sort of part in Gaston Sauverin's story. He, too, knew nothing of it before those events, any more than Marie Fauville did, or Florence Levasseur. There is no denying the fact. Hippolyte Fauville was guided by revenge, and by revenge alone. If not, why should he have acted as he did, seeing that Cosmo Mornington's millions reverted to him by the fullest of rights? Besides, if he had wished to enjoy those millions, he would not have begun by killing himself. One thing, therefore, is certain. The inheritance in no way affected Hippolyte Fauville's resolves or actions, and nevertheless, one after the other, with inflexible regularity, as if they had been struck down in the very order called for by the terms of the Mornington inheritance, they all disappeared. Cosmo Mornington, then Hippolyte Fauville, then Edmund Fauville, then Marie Fauville, then Gaston Sauvin. First the possessor of the fortune, next all those whom he had appointed as legatees, and I repeat, in the very order in which the will enabled them to lay claim to the fortune. Is it not strange, asked Perena, and are we not bound to suppose that there was a controlling mind at the back of it all? Are we not bound to admit that the formidable contest was influenced by that inheritance, and that above the hatred and jealousy of the loathsome Fauville there loomed a being endowed with even more tremendous energy, pursuing a tangible aim, and driving to their deaths, one by one, like so many numbered victims, all the unconscious actors in the tragedy of which he tied, and of which he is now untying the threads? Don Luis leaned forward and continued earnestly, Monsieur le Préfet, the public instinct so thoroughly agrees with me. A section of the police, with Monsieur Weber, the deputy chief detective at its head, argues in a manner so exactly identical with my own, that the existence of that being is at once confirmed in every mind. There had to be someone to act as the controlling brain, to provide the will and the energy. That someone was myself. After all, why not? Did not I possess the condition which was indispensable to make anyone interested in the murders? Was I not Cosmo Mornington's heir? I will not defend myself. It may be that outside interference, it may be that circumstances will oblige you, Monsieur le Préfet, to take unjustifiable measures against me. But I will not insult you by believing for one second that you can imagine the man whose acts you have been able to judge for the last two months capable of such crimes. And yet the public instinct is right in accusing me. Apart from Hippolyte Fauville, there is necessarily a criminal, and that criminal is necessarily Cosmo Mornington's heir." As I am not the man, another heir of Cosmo Mornington exists. It is he whom I accuse, Monsieur le Préfet. There is something more than a dead man's will in the wicked business that is being enacted before us. We thought for a time that there was only that. But there is something more. I have not been fighting a dead man all the time. More than once I have felt the very breath of life strike against my face. More than once I have felt the teeth of the tiger seeking to tear me. The dead man did much, but he did not do everything. And even then was he alone in doing what he did. Was the being of whom I speak merely one who executed his orders? Or was he also the accomplice who helped him in his scheme? I do not know, but he certainly continued a work which he perhaps began by inspiring, and which, in any case, he turned to his own profit, resolutely completed and carried out to the very end. And he did so because he knew of Cosmo Mornington's will. It is he whom I accuse, Monsieur le Préfet. 
I accuse him at the very least of that part of the crimes and felonies which cannot be attributed to Hippolyte Fauville. I accuse him of breaking open the drawer of the desk in which Maître Lepertuis, Cosmo Mornington's solicitor, had put his client's will. I accuse him of entering Cosmo Mornington's room, and substituting a phial containing a toxic fluid for one of the phials of glycerophosphate which Cosmo Mornington used for his hypodermic injections. I accuse him of playing the part of a doctor who came to certify Cosmo Mornington's death, and of delivering a false certificate. I accuse him of supplying Hippolyte Fauville with the poison which killed successively Inspector Vedeau, Edmund Fauville, and Hippolyte Fauville himself. I accuse him of arming and turning against me the hand of Gaston Sauverin, who, acting under his advice and his instructions, tried three times to take my life, and ended by causing the death of my chauffeur. I accuse him of profiting by the relations which Gaston Sauverin had established with the infirmary, in order to communicate with Marie Fauville, and of arranging for Marie Fauville to receive the hypodermic syringe and the phial of poison with which the poor woman was able to carry out her plans of suicide. Perenna paused to note the effect of these charges. Then he went on. I accuse him of conveying to Gaston Sauverin, by some unknown means, the newspaper cuttings about Marie Fauville's death, and at the same time foreseeing the inevitable results of his act. To sum up, therefore, without mentioning his share in the other crimes, the death of Inspector Vedeau, the death of my chauffeur, I accuse him of killing Cosmo Mornington, Edmund Fauville, Hippolyte Fauville, Marie Fauville, and Gaston Sauverin. In plain words, of killing all those who stood between the millions and himself. These last words, Monsieur le Préfet, will tell you clearly what I have in my mind. When a man does away with five of his fellow creatures, in order to secure a certain number of millions, it means that he is convinced that this proceeding will positively and mathematically ensure his entering into possession of the millions. In short, when a man does away with a millionaire and his four successive heirs, it means that he himself is the millionaire's fifth heir. The man will be here in a moment. What? It was a spontaneous exclamation on the part of the Prefect of Police, who was forgetting the whole of Don Luis Perena's powerful and closely reasoned argument, and thinking only of the stupefying apparition which Don Luis announced. Don Luis replied, Monsieur le Préfet, his visit is the logical outcome of my accusations. Remember that Cosmo Mornington's will explicitly states that no heir's claim will be valid unless he is present at today's meeting. And suppose he does not come, asked the Prefect, thus showing that Don Luis's conviction had gradually got the better of his doubts. He will come, Monsieur le Préfet, if not, there would have been no sense in all this business. Limited to the crimes and other actions of Hippolyte Fauville, it could be looked upon as the preposterous work of a madman. Continued to the deaths of Marie Fauville and Gaston Sauverin, it demands, as its inevitable outcome, the appearance of a person who, as the last descendant of the Roussels of Saint-Étienne, and consequently as Cosmo Mornington's absolute heir, taking precedence of myself, will come to claim the hundred millions, which he has won by means of his incredible audacity. And suppose he does not come! M. de Malion once more exclaimed, in a more vehement tone. Then, Monsieur le Préfet, you may take it that I am the culprit, and you have only to arrest me. This day, between five and six o'clock, you will see before you, in this room, the person who killed the Mornington heirs. It is, humanly speaking, impossible that this should not be so. Consequently, the law will be satisfied in any circumstances. He or I, the position is quite simple." M. de Malion was silent. He gnawed his moustache thoughtfully, and walked round and round the table, within the narrow circle formed by the others. It was obvious that objections to the supposition were springing up in his mind. In the end he muttered, as though speaking to himself, "'No, no, for after all, how are we to explain that the man should have waited until now to claim his right?' "'An accident, perhaps, Monsieur le Préfet. An obstacle of some kind, or else, one can never tell, the perverse longing for a more striking sensation.' 
and remember, Monsieur le Préfet, how minutely and subtly the whole business was worked. Each event took place at the very moment fixed by Hippolyte Fauville. Cannot we take it that his accomplice is pursuing this method to the end, and that he will not reveal himself until the last minute? M. de Malion exclaimed with a sort of anger, No, no, and again no, it is not possible. If a creature monstrous enough to commit such a series of murders exists, he will not be such a fool as to deliver himself into our hands. Monsieur le Préfet, he does not know the danger that threatens him if he comes here, because no one has even contemplated the theory of his existence. Besides, what risk does he run? What risk? Why, if he has really committed those murders, he has committed them, Monsieur le Préfet. He has caused them to be committed, which is a different thing. And you now see where the man's unsuspected strength lies. He does not act in person. From the day when the truth appeared to me, I have succeeded in gradually discovering his means of action, in laying bare the machinery which he controls, the tricks which he employs. He does not act in person. There you have his method. You will find that it is the same throughout the series of murders. In appearance, Cosmo Mornington died of the results of a carelessly administered injection. In reality, it was this man who caused the injection to prove fatal. In appearance, Inspector Vero was killed by Hippolyte Fauville. In reality, it must have been this man who contrived the murder by pointing out the necessity to Fauville, and so to speak guiding his hand. And in the same way, in appearance, Fauville killed his son and committed suicide. Marie Fauville committed suicide. Gaston Sauverin committed suicide. In reality, it was this man who wanted them dead, who prompted them to commit suicide, and who supplied them with the means of death. There you have the method, and sure, Monsieur le Préfet, you have the man." and in a lower voice that contained a sort of apprehension, he added, I confess that never before, in the course of a life that has been full of strange meetings, have I encountered a more terrifying person, acting with more devilish ability or greater psychological insight. His words created an ever-increasing sensation among his hearers. They really saw that invisible being. He took shape in their imaginations. They waited for him to arrive. Twice Don Luis had turned to the door and listened and his action did more than anything else to conjure up the image of the man who was coming. M. de Malion said, Whether he acted in person or caused others to act, the law, once it has hold of him, will know how to— The law will find it no easy matter, M. le Préfet. A man of his powers and resource must have foreseen everything, even his arrest, even the accusation of which he would be the subject, and there was little to be brought against him but moral charges without proofs. Then you think— I think, Monsieur le Préfet, that the thing will be to accept his explanations as quite natural, and not to show any distrust. What you want is to know who he is. Later on, before long, you will be able to unmask him. The Prefect of Police continued to walk round the table. Major d'Astrignac kept his eyes fixed on Perena, whose coolness amazed him. The solicitor and the secretary of embassy seemed greatly excited. In fact, nothing could be more sensational than the thought that filled all their minds. Was the abominable murder about to appear before them? Silence, said the prefect, stopping his walk. Someone had crossed the anteroom. There was a knock at the door. Come in. The office messenger entered, carrying a card tray. On the tray was a letter, and in addition there was one of those printed slips on which callers write their name and the object of their visit. M. de Malion hastened toward the messenger. He hesitated a moment before taking up the slip. He was very pale. Then he glanced at it quickly. Oh! he said with a start. He looked toward Don Luis, reflected, and then, taking the letter, he said to the messenger, "'Is the bearer outside?' "'In the anteroom, Monsieur le Préfet. Show the person in when I ring.' The messenger left the room. Monsieur de Malion stood in front of his desk without moving. For the second time Don Luis met his eyes, and a feeling of perturbation came over him. What was happening? 
With a sharp movement the prefect of police opened the envelope which he held in his hand, unfolded the letter, and began to read it. The others watched his every gesture, watched the least change of expression on his face. Were Perenna's predictions about to be fulfilled? Was a fifth heir putting in his claim? The moment he had read the first lines, M. de Malion looked up and, addressing Don Luis, murmured, "'You are right, monsieur. This is a claim.' "'On whose part, monsieur le préfet?' Don Luis could not help asking. M. de Malion did not reply. He finished reading the letter. Then he read it again, with the attention of a man weighing every word. Lastly, he read aloud, "'Monsieur le préfet, a chance correspondence has revealed to me the existence of an unknown heir of the Roussel family.' It was only today that I was able to procure the documents necessary for identifying this heir, and owing to unforeseen obstacles, it is only at the last moment that I am able to send them to you by the person whom they concern, respecting a secret which is not mine, and wishing, as a woman, to remain outside a business in which I have been only accidentally involved, I beg you, Monsieur le Préfet, to excuse me if I do not feel called upon to sign my name to this letter. So Perena had seen rightly, and events were justifying his forecast. Someone was putting in an appearance within the period indicated. The claim was made in good time, and the very way in which things were happening at the exact moment was curiously suggestive of the mechanical exactness that had governed the whole business. The last question still remained. Who was this unknown person, the possible heir, and therefore the five- or six-fold murderer? He was waiting in the next room. There was nothing but a wall between him and the others. He was coming in. They would see him. They would know who he was. The prefect suddenly rang the bell. A few tense seconds elapsed. Oddly enough, M. de Malion did not remove his eyes from Perena. Don Luis remained quite master of himself, but restless and uneasy at heart. The door opened. The messenger showed someone in. It was Florence Lavassar. End of chapter 15